So, I've been places where people just get up and start praying, and everyone's just like, hey, like that. I don't do that. It's not nice. Um, so, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about this morning. Um, we talk about the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ a lot, like all the time. Um, the gospel of Jesus is in every story from beginning to end of the book. It's there, and we try to pull it out. So typically when it comes around to things like um, holidays like, like Easter and Christmas and stuff like that, I tend, to go with, um, I tend to go the route of pointing out the Jewish festivals and stuff. Last year we talked about Yom Kippur. We talked about all the symbolism there. Um, it was the Day of Atonement. This year we're going to talk about what it would be like to be in Jerusalem, first century Jerusalem, on the day that Jesus was put on trial and crucified. Um, and, uh, and don't worry, we'll get farther than that. We'll get to the resurrection at, at the end. But I, I want to I talk about all this because it's very important. We don't have a lot of midweek services. We had a stater last night. That was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah. All right, so I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Um, I'm going to be jumping all over scriptures today. There's not a particular place I'm pulling from. I'm going to be in Psalm uh, 116, 118, um, and I'm going to be some in the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. So, yeah, so. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. You are a wonderful God. You are a righteous, a good, a holy God. Um, your, your love vastly exceeds um, any, any force in the universe, God. Um, your desire to see your people return to you, to see your children, your, your prodigal children that have walked astray, your desire to see them come home um, is, is, is so big, it's immense. And, and you would do, go to drastic measures to see that happen. And we thank you for that. Um, we come because, because you draw us, because you expose us to, to your love, um, and so we, we come on this very day to sit and to talk about what you must have felt, your son Jesus, as he walked on this earth, um, the thoughts of the disciples who were there experiencing that, um, the Jewish people who witnessed it. Um, give us a better understanding of exactly what was going on um, and, and make it applicable to this 2,000-year-later world. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. I think I'm getting a little bit of a ring, a little feedback there. All right. So, all right. So, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 43, you don't have to turn there because I'm not going to read it. I'm just, I'm just telling you where it is, in case you want to mark it down and read it later. Um, what we find is we find the disciples asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane um, while Jesus is praying to his Father about what is going to happen as the evening progresses. Um, <clears throat> it's a really fascinating picture. Um, Growing up in Sunday school, I, I used to always hear, you know, different teachers talk about how um, they, they would make some sort of metaphor, spiritual metaphor about how, you know, God's trying to do his work and you're sleeping. And they would, they would kind of go that route. And, and God's disciples are always sleeping on the job and stuff like this. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very, like, um, I, I want to try to find out exactly why they were sleeping. All right, so, um, the events of the day that led up to the disciples being in the Garden of Eden, you may not be aware of how taxing they were. They had been traveling lots and lots of miles. For, they had been traveling for days um, to get to the city of Jerusalem. 
um, a very long ways. So they get to the city, they, they get to right outside the city of Jerusalem, probably somewhere, maybe sort of what we would think of as a suburb, maybe a house in the hillside somewhere. Um, and they have a traditional Passover, a Jewish um, ceremony um, that requires a huge meal, four cups of wine, um, and the meal starts at sundown, so it probably starts at about, I mean, imagine, imagine walking for days, traveling, get to this house, um, about sundown, you sit down to eat a lot of carbs, um, you know, it's, it's probably like 7.30, uh, and then you drink, um, as you're going through this Passover, you drink four glasses of wine. Um, they're getting probably pretty sleepy. Um, Passover feast would have, it would have taken place really um, at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a very, usually pretty late hour. It would go for a very long time. Um, I'm pretty certain that every Jewish man, woman, and child would have wanted to, by this point, crawl into bed and pass out, just, just go to sleep. Um, and then the rabbis, it's funny because as you read, as you read the ancient writings and stuff, the rabbis were aware of this. They actually made provisions for people who fell asleep at the Passover. And this is what they wrote. Um, they had a rule that, that a person who dozed lightly around the Passover table could remain part of the feast. They could stay. Or just nudge them, wake them up. Um, someone who fell asleep had to go. So, like, it's this little game. You see somebody kind of, kind of hey. Or if you don't really like them too much, you just let them hit the table. And then you wake them up and tell them to get out. Um, so this is kind of, they had little rules and stuff like that. Um, so after the festival had ended, it probably would have been, honestly, about midnight. Um, Matthew twenty six thirty tells us that before they left the house, they sung some hymns. Um, as, I, as I talk about this part, I want you, what I want you to do is picture Jesus. Um, maybe, maybe try to get into his mind. I mean, he had a human mind. Get into his mind and... Uh, and, and think about the, the scripture that we're reading, the, the hymns that they sung. Think about the meal that they just had. If you've ever, if you've ever had a Seder, celebrated a Seder, a Passover Seder, you, you would have seen all the symbolism. I imagine for Jesus, it would have been, he would have been really sensitive to all the symbolism going on there. Um, so, so then afterwards, they start, they start singing hymns, and they sing hymns like so, um, they, the, uh, the, the Mishnah, the, the beginning part of the, of the Talmud. It tells us that they would have sung um, Hallel hymns, which is basically Psalm 115, um, to about Psalm 118. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to show you some excerpts from some of this. I want you to think about the mind of Jesus. And, and Jesus alone would have known exactly what these things are talking about because nothing had happened yet. There was no crucifixion. The people didn't necessarily grasp the entire meaning of it. Um, Psalm 116. This is something that they would have sang. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold upon me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. This actually, you can kind of see, turns into one of the prayers that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane a few hours later. Um, We have another one. It goes like this. I will lift up the cup of salvation. Remember Jesus talking about, let this cup pass from me. Uh, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. Precious in, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. That one right there is pretty intense. 
I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people and in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Jerusalem was where Jesus was taken and where he was crucified, right outside the gates there. Um, and then this one. Psalm 118, another one that Jesus would have sang before he went out to the garden. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Some pretty emotional swings from very somber to very happy. The, the range of emotions that Jesus must have been feeling was probably pretty big. After singing all these prophetic words, the, the emotion and the fears that really must have swept over him, and uh, it, 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 it might have been a little unbearable. And so rather than going to bed, what does he do? He does what he normally does in the morning when he needs to talk to God, his father. He says, hey guys, I'm going to go to the garden. I can't sleep. There's no wonder that he can't sleep. He knows what's coming. He knows what, what he's going through, and he's just sort of celebrated it all in a feast and sing, singing. Hey guys, I'm going to go to the garden to pray. And some of the disciples go with him. Um, instead of heading to bed, some of them get up and, and they follow him out there. So um, I'm going to attempt to relive some of the events in your mind and, and, and try to bring, that might bring about some of the insights into this evening. Uh, for instance, you, you might, have you, ever, have you ever wondered, you ever asked questions about why did they why did they arrest Jesus on the night of the Passover? Um, why didn't they just arrest him any time? There was lots of times where they had him there, and they could have just arrested him. Why did they wait until after the Passover? Um, Jesus was a wildly popular guy. Um, his followers, um, it was probably at, this, at some point in time, it was upwards of, of 5,000 people um, were following him at one point. Um, his followers hailed him as what's called the Messiah, the Anointed One the one who would usher in a new nation under a new king, once again, that they had been waiting for. He had been able to gather these massive crowds. At one point, we see 5,000 people literally standing there, and he feeds them all. Um, and that happened on several occasions. Um, at one point, um, we read this, John six fourteen. Uh, when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to... But to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They were going to take him, set him on a throne, and put a crown on him and force him to be their king. He was that popular. The things that he was saying were that important. They were going to take him and force him to be the king, so he ran away. Um, he was wildly popular. He couldn't have been arrested in broad daylight. It couldn't happen. There's no way that could happen. So to avoid an uprising, because really if they go in and arrest him in front of all these people, there's going to be a massive uprising. It happened all the time. We always read about it with happening with Paul when he brings the message of the gospel into these cities. Um, so to avoid this uprising, the chief priests had to proceed in secret. They had to, they had to secretly plot, as it says, and, and, and find him and arrest him where, where nobody would be aware of it. And so Gethsemane was outside of the city, so Judas led the soldiers to where he knew Jesus would be. Um, Two of the Gospels says that, that, that Judas had regularly seen him in Gethsemane, um, and so he knew 
sort of, that it was a regular place Jesus went, he would be there. If he was going to be anywhere, he'd be there praying. Passover was the perfect time to arrest Jesus. It was. Um, because everyone who was a follower uh, of his would have been finishing up the celebration of the Passover, or they would have been asleep. And so there was nobody walking the streets. There was nobody anywhere um, that would have witnessed anything. So Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. His disciples keep falling asleep. And Judas knows where he'll be. And so Judas just casually strolls up and arrests him. Jesus, after his arrest, was taken to his trial, quote-unquote trial, um, in the very, very early hours of the morning. So let's say he prayed for a few hours. Um, it's it possible that he prayed all night because it says that they, they, they took hold of him, they sort of took him back to where the Sanhedrin gathers. Um, and then you see that um, in the morning, they, they, hold on, I think I have it up here. Um, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders, the scribes, and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. So the sun starts coming up, and they bound Jesus, and they take him over to Pilate. Long night. Jesus hasn't slept in a very long time. Um, so, after his arrest, he's taken to his trial in the very early hours of the morning, and all the Jewish people would have been sleeping off the festival um, while he was being arraigned. Um, Peter's denial happens during that night. When the soldiers come, he flees from Jesus. Um, uh, it was spoken of on the way to the garden. While they're walking there, he sort of tells Peter, you're going to be denying me. And Peter's like, it's not going to happen. Soldiers come. He flees. Um, according to Mark's gospel, the, the, um, the rooster crows around 4 or 5 in the morning, right as the sun begins to come up, as roosters are known to do. Um, according to Mark's gospel, the uh, Jesus sentence was handed down at, at sunrise, like we see right here. Um, so, a question I always had growing up were, were, was who, who were all these people that, that were condemning Jesus, that were gathering? Because it says that, that Pilate sort of walks him out in front of everybody and everybody's sort of yelling, crucify him, crucify him, we want him dead. Who are all these people? Um, and now when you add it in the mix like this, who are all these people at like 6 and 7 in the morning, the day after the Passover? If you put all this together, these people that were gathered there condemning Jesus were not the everyday Jewish people that loved him and loved his message, his message of hope for the, uh, for the lower people. You know who it was? It was, it was, it was a specific group of <clears throat> angry Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and angry Roman soldiers. And they had conspired to do this at this point where nobody in the crowd would object to it. Right? Because I, I, always, I always wondered, like, you see, you see the people following Jesus, and then you see the people condemning Jesus, and then you see the people weeping as he's being led up to the hill to be crucified. And I, I was, it baffled me. What is this? Like, uh, is this some sort of bipolar? Like, what's going on massive, on a massive scale? Like, how, or, how do we love him and then want to kill him and then, and, then, and then cry as he's being killed? What is going on? Well, that's what's going on. This whole thing was planned. This whole thing was orchestrated. This whole thing was a massive scheme to kill Jesus. They loved him, the people did, and, and if they were there seeing this happen, they wouldn't have let it happen, all right? So, let's talk about the Passover. The Passover was one of the three pilgrim feasts that brought hundreds of thousands of people, uh, Jews, to Jerusalem every single year. Very, very important occasion. On the afternoon before the meal, each family carried a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed, 
Um, afterwards, it was cooked and it was shared with a large gathering of extended people. The Passover is filled with prophetic significance about Christ. It's especially in, in the time of Christ, it, it, it really was. Um, the homes of the Israelites uh, um, would, be, would be just celebrating these festivals everywhere. All kinds of family members coming from everywhere to gather in. And just as God had saved his people, when the angel of the Lord passed over the homes of the Israelites um, during, when they were in slavery of afflictions... Uh, uh, during that, that time of affliction, um, they were in, in... I'm sorry, I'm trying to get on my thoughts here because I'm trying to get somewhere else. All right, I'm focused. Um, so, the people are celebrating this time when the angel of the Lord passed over them and, 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 and didn't rain down his wrath on them because they had sacrificed a lamb and spread its blood on the door. Um, and if you think about that, they're celebrating something that happened while they were sleeping. They've always celebrated. For 1,800 years before the time of Christ, they celebrated this ceremony, and then while they were sleeping, the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians were killed so that they could be free. Um, it was a sign to them. So in the time of Christ, they celebrate the Passover, they sacrifice the lamb, and while they are sleeping, Jesus is being arraigned and tried and set up to be killed. While they are sleeping, once again, the angel of the Lord is passing over his people once again. It's, it's this beautiful thing. Um, and, and the people would speak about this. The, 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 um, they had a saying about like this, in that night they were redeemed, and in that night they will be redeemed. And think about it, hundreds of years earlier, their lives were spared as they slept, and they were once again being spared as they slept. The book of Exodus, puts a, it, it, uh, chapter 12, if you read it, it basically says this, it was a night of vigil for the Lord to bring them out from the land of Egypt, and so on this night all of Israel is to keep the vigil to the Lord for generations to come. You know what a vigil is? A vigil is, is, is it's sort of a watch. Your vigilance, your, your keeping watch. And so the rabbis would instruct all of their students, keep watch to see what great thing God would do next. Every Passover that they celebrated, they were keeping watch for something that would happen. They always knew something would happen one day during Passover as it happened back then, and that something would bring redemption and salvation. And guess what happened that year during the Passover? I mean, the, the, the leaders that plotted to kill Jesus... The reason they're doing this is because they're trying to end it all, but they're actually causing it all. They're part of it. It's fascinating. Um, so they were instructed to keep watch to see what great things God would do. So for thousands of years, even up to today, the Jewish people have believed that God would send a Redeemer on Passover, and redemption did come that day, and none of them recognized it, at least not in that moment. So Jesus was crucified um, around 9 in the morning. As they enter into the city at 9, all the people wake up, um, and, and there's a sacrifice that has to happen at 9 o'clock. It always has happened for 1,800 years. 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, two separate sacrifices. Um, so all the people rise up um, from sleeping off the Passover, and they all get their stuff together, and they say, well, we need to go into Jerusalem. Um, Josephus writes, the, the historian Josephus writes that on this year, the, the year of, of Jesus' crucifixion, we can estimate that 2 million people we're piling into Jerusalem. That is a lot of people. Two million people. Um, so the people are streaming into the city, and what do they see? They see a man being led, whose face is beaten, his beard has been ripped out, and hum a humiliating act, and they don't recognize him. They recognized him a few days ago, when they were waving palm branches and, and hailing him as the, as the king that had come. And, 
And so he's being led by Roman soldiers out of the city. And they don't recognize him. He had been flogged, his beard had been ripped down, and he's walking down the street that leads back out of the city as they are coming in, and they're passing him, and they're all kind of stepping aside as he's passing them. They don't know what's going on. They have no idea what transpired during that night. And this was, this was, this was the time of the first temple sacrifice, so they had to go into Jerusalem at 9 o'clock. So at 9 o'clock, Jesus' followers reappear into the story, and at 9 o'clock, they start to find out exactly what had transpired during that night as Jesus is being led out. When they finally saw him, they would have found him completely unrecognizable. After, after a little while, this rumbling would have kind of gone through the crowd and as the people realize who it is that is being led out. And they start weeping and wailing and they start following him. And they're weeping out loud. And, 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 and um, I think I have... Look at verse 27 here. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They started following him as he was led out to be crucified. In, in the verse right before this, in verse 26, we see one of those people coming in from the countryside. As they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the countryside. Where was he coming from? He's probably coming from his house, coming into the city, celebrating the Passover, coming in to take part in the sacrifice. Um, and they laid him on the cross to, to carry, lay, they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And so behind him lines up all these people. Hopefully the pictures are starting to come alive. Maybe you can feel like you're, you're a little more there now. It's not just some separated thing. Hollywood's made it something sort of very different. This was very real. It was very gritty. Um, another thing that the people would have seen as they entered into the city, they would have seen something that looks like this. Um, this is the altar. It's got four horns. It, it's, it's built according to the um, sort of descriptions that were given to, uh, to Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, it, it may have been made of a different material. It, it, uh, there's hints that it may have been made of some steel here and there. Um, maybe a pit carved in the middle with a sort of a, a grill on top of it. Um, so, and, and maybe some, they, they say maybe some kind of plumbing so the, so the blood that was on there would run out. Um, so they're coming and they're going to see this. They're not just going to see this at the end of the street. They're going to see this with a lamb on top whose hands and feet are tied. And he's laying and his head sort of hanging off the side. And behind that head that's hanging off the side, it probably would have been this high, uh, there would be a priest, and he'd be holding the head, and he would have a knife, a dagger of some sort, and he would be holding it to the throat. So the people are coming in. Jesus is being led out. And their eyes turn from Jesus to the altar. where The priest is standing there with the lamb. The symbolism is stunning. Another thing that they would have seen is they would have seen a... Uh, um, at, at a place called the pinnacle of the temple. It was the highest point in the temple. It was sort of a corner above, above the, uh, the altar. They would have seen another priest with a shofar, and he would have been blowing the shofar. Um, but not yet. There's a specific time when he would blow the shofar, but he's standing there at the ready. A shofar is a, uh, it's, it's a ram's horn. It was either a, a, a desert goat's horn or a ram's horn, depending. Um, and really, the shofar symbolizes... Um, Abraham, when he was about to sacrifice his son, and, and, and the angel of the Lord stops him and points to a ram that was in the thicket, and he sacrifices the ram instead of his son. That's why they use that. It's a reminder. Everything in Judaism is a reminder. Everything. Um, it, it's funny that like, we, don't, we, don't, we don't live this way at all anymore. Um, everything. Why are you wearing your sandals with this many straps? Well, because it reminds me of this. Why are you wearing... 
this? Well, because it reminds me of this. Why does your vest come to a V? Well, it reminds me of the dagger that Ehud plunged into the belly of the big fat king. Like, everything had some sort of everything. The shape of your clothing, um, the materials that you used, all pointed to something. So, um, I was going to, if you follow me on Twitter, you would have seen I, was, I had a rabbi, he was going to blow a shofar, so you can hear what it sounds like. He canceled last night. I apologize. Very, um, so, um, I did, it was not like a bait and switch. You get your money back at the door. I apologize. Um, so I have the, I want to, I want to prepare you, so like, to, to show you. I'm going to show you a video of a rabbi on the pinnacle, blowing the shofar, calling the people to the 9 o'clock service, okay? So to get you used to, like, what you would hear, because it doesn't sound like what you would think. You hear the echo? There's apparently a dog, too. All right, so that's... Um, I wanted to get used to what the shofar would sound like. I want you to sort of have that in your head. So here's how this would all work. Along with the, the, rat, the, the, the priest with the knife to the, to the animal's throat, there would be this guy up top with the, with the shofar. There would be another priest. He'd be somewhere in the crowd, and he would have an hourglass. Um, and that hourglass would be counting down the time until the first sacrifice, timed to, go, to, to end right at 9 o'clock. Um, if it was a sunny day, they may use a sundial they had so it could be more accurate. Um, <clears throat> and here's how this would work. At five minutes to at five minutes to nine, the hourglass would run up. It would end. The signal would be given to the man on the pinnacle of the temple. He would stand up and he would blow the shofar. Everyone in Jerusalem would hear it. It's really loud. And they would all just fall silent. Everything would stop. It would be this sort of eerie, deathly silence. Why? Well, during this time, they would be praying to God, and they would be begging, God, please keep your promise to us. This would be a time where the whole, everyone would stop and they'd say, Lord, please keep your promise. Keep your promise to save us. Keep your promise of redemption. While they are praying, right after the shofar is blown, the priest plunges the knife into the throat of the lamb and cuts it, and throws the blood up against the side of the altar. For 1,800 years, at 9 o'clock and at 3 o'clock, a shofar was being blown, a lamb was being killed, and the blood was being thrown up against the side of the altar. 1,800 years, every single day. If it was raining, if it was snowing, if it was hot. On holidays, every single day. This, they would hear this, and every single day, for 1,800 years, they would stop, and they would pray, Lord, keep your promise, please keep your promise to us, please keep your promise. Send your redemption to us. Please keep your promise as this lamb was being killed. So you got it? You got the picture in your head? So. This particular day, the day that Jesus was sacrificed, it was a Friday. The only thing different is that this Friday is a holiday. Josephus writes, again, that two million people are gathered in Jerusalem. They had, they had just passed Jesus dying. They're going in 
So the 9 a.m. session, Jesus is being led out to be killed. I guess you could say the throat was to his neck. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the knife was to his throat. He's being led out. And the shofar is blown. And the lamb is sacrificed. And the nails are plunged in Jesus' hands and feet, and he's raised up to die. The blood is spilled, just like the blood of the lamb is being spilled. You go about your day. Maybe you go visit the cross. You do your business in town. Three o'clock rolls around. You start making your way back in towards the temple. And as you're making your way in towards the temple, you still remember there's just three men right outside the city hanging on crosses. And the one in the middle looks like he might be dead. The two on the sides are still suffering. And you're not within sight, maybe, of the, of the priest, because, again, there's two million people. So you're not within sight of the priest of the altar. You're, you maybe are somewhere where you can't necessarily see the man with the shofar. You definitely can't see the man with the hourglass. And you know that the men are suffering outside the city. And you hear this. And you stop what you're doing. And you fall silent and you pray. And you pray, Father, keep your promise to us. Keep your promise to us. Please keep your promise. Send your redemption. And everything falls silent. And the man in the middle on the cross it's very quiet. He lifts his head and he yells, It is finished! What's finished? What are you praying for? What are the people asking for? They're asking for their redemption. And what just happened? The scriptures say right after he said this, he gave up his spirit, he died. It's finished. He's not saying his life is over. He's not, it's not what he's saying. 1,800 years worth of work is done. Within just a few years, the temple would be destroyed and the sacrifices would end. Everything was set in motion. The work was done. And you don't realize what's happened. And you go home. Two days later, the Feast of first fruits begins. So you spend the next day the Sabbath, you go to the temple, the sacrifice happens, and it's a feast of first fruits. So they have, they, have certain, they have certain scriptures that they read. They read one from the, from the back book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause the flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The day after Christ dies, after he screams, it is finished, and he dies, you go to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits for preparation for it, and you hear him talking about how when, when God does his work, people are going to be brought back from the dead. Bones are going to just get up, and they're going to walk again. And you're thinking about this. They're going to read all these passages on the Sabbath about 
about the dead coming back to life. And imagine Jesus' followers streaming into the temple on the Sabbath the day after he died, still stunned by this brutal, brutal execution that they've seen. And they would have listened as this vision was recounted, which God had promised to bring the dead to life again. And on the very next day, what do they hear? They start hearing wild rumors that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And it turns out there's 500 people claiming to have seen him. Two men are, are walking and Jesus appears with them. They come back with this far-fetched tale about, Je- about Jesus, the dead Jesus appearing to them as they walked on the streets. And they say, did, our, did not our hearts burn inside of us? Did we not recognize this person that we loved? The Feast of first fruits coincided with Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus' followers returned to the tomb on the morning of the celebration, it was open and it was empty, and Jesus became the fruits of those who would be raised from the dead one day. The festivals had become real. If you were here last year, we talked about the festivals. The, 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 word, the Hebrew word for the festivals actually means rehearsals. They were rehearsals. They were rehearsing for this very day. The harvest had begun. First fruits was always about resurrection. They always thought it was about thanking God for crops, thanking God for barley that came up out of the ground. Um, they, they, they thought it was something completely different. Turns out the festival of first fruits was about Jesus. It was about resurrection. On all, on all scales. If you were to ask any Christian, what is the most important part of the story of Jesus? Hopefully they're going to say the resurrection because it is the most important part of the story. Resurrection. That's where we get our hope from, that things can be made right, that things can change, that people can change, that marriages can be fixed, families can be brought back together. That's where we get our hope. If you ask any Jewish man or woman what is the greatest part of the ancient stories that that they love, I mean, there's a lot to choose from, and there's some pretty miraculous stuff. Seas being parted and the flood, the creation narrative, covenants with Abraham, the people becoming God's own at Sinai. Um, But if you ask the Jewish people what is the greatest part of the ancient Jewish story, you know what they say? our delivery from Egypt when we were let out of bondage. Why? Because it's the same story as the resurrection. God's people being led out of bondage to sin. These stories are important. We love these stories. They're vastly important to us. That was their miraculous delivery from Egypt. Almost every book in the Old Testament refers, and in the New Testament refers to the Jewish people being freed from Egypt. They mention it at every worship service, every festival. It's at the beginning of most of the conversations that God has with them. He says, remember, I brought you out of Egypt, so let's talk. It's the reason that God said that, that they should obey him. He says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what he says. Uh, it, it's the reason for, if you, if you go through the laws, you read the book of Leviticus, you read the laws, the reasons why he has this laws, a lot of them actually have reasons. Um, Leviticus 19.34, it, it says that, that the fact that they were freed from Egypt by God is the reason that they love and accept the traveling immigrants and people who were not like them. It's the reason that racism should not exist. Why? Because God freed you from Egypt. It says, uh, it's the reason that they showed mercy to the poor in Leviticus 25, 30, verse 35 and 38. Show mercy to the poor. Why? Because I brought you out of Egypt. You were poor. I showed mercy on you. It's the reason that they could rest on the Sabbath. Why are we resting on the Sabbath? Because I brought you out of Egypt. That story was about resurrection. The reason we do everything that we do 
the reason God tells us to live how God tells us to live is because of the resurrection. Because God's way is all about taking things that are destroyed and dead, resurrecting them, making them whole again. And he's commanded us to live in a way that we are practicing resurrection. We are practicing freeing the slaves. We are, we are practicing healing. We are practicing bringing marriages together. We, we are practicing reconciling relationships that are broken, people that hate each other, uh, people that, that cannot be reconciled. Resurrection tells us that they can. Everything that we want to happen is, 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 is wound up in this idea of resurrection. We can see the work of God has always been resurrection on small scales, on large scales, on cosmic scales, freeing his people from bondage, giving them a temple so that they could once again walk in communion with God, just like in the Garden of Eden. That's resurrection. Um, bringing them back to Jerusalem after exile. That was resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's the hinge, on, it's the entirety uh, of, of the message of the church. It's what the whole thing hinges on and swings on. Everything that God commands of us is directly linked to God's power to resurrect. Everyday people are being resurrected every single day. Resurrection is happening. We, 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 you know, people gather and they say, we're here to celebrate the resurrection as if there was only one. As if the resurrection of Jesus, like that was it, he rose from the dead. Um, the resurrection started then. I, I would argue it actually started 1,800 years earlier. And it keeps going. And it keeps going. From that day forward, we become aware that the goal is resurrection. Illnesses are being healed. Addictions are being kicked. Children are coming home. Marriages are being restored. Their people are being made joyful and being given hope that are depressed and saddened. They're finding identity that was, that, was, that, that was lost in the Garden of Eden, that they are loved and becoming more lovely every single day. People that think they're worthless, what does the resurrection tell them? Oh, no. You're very, very important. And a matter of fact, God is going to work in your heart and change you and make you something in his plan that is amazing. One day, it's going to be literal. Our death will not be the end. There will be resurrection. We believe in resurrection and we practice resurrection here at Watermark. Happy Easter. Look at someone next to you and say, Happy Easter. Resurrection is a very, very important thing. I don't want to end today on this sad note. It's, it's, a, it's a really good thing. We're going to take communion. Communion is very, very important to us. Communion is a time when we celebrate what Jesus did for us. He paid the price for us so that we could be, you could say, resurrected and reconciled with God the way we were created to be. And that, that was severed, that was dead. And then when Jesus died, that died with him. And we, when he rose again, he gave us the ability to reconcile with God. Um, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you don't take communion, but I would ask that you think about it. I would ask that you ponder it, the message that you've heard. Um, as you go throughout this day, ponder the resurrection. As you go throughout every single moment, live in it, exercise it, find out what that means. This story is, is, is applicable everywhere. It's not just something that happened, it's something that happens. 
Sin is being put to death. People are being brought back to life in all kinds of ways. So we spend some time every single week, we take communion and we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the, in, in, in the wine and we eat it. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ spilled for us. And we, we take some time and pray and, and maybe confess some sins to God and get right with him. Maybe you confess to someone uh, someone in the, in, the, in, the body of church, in, in, in the body of Christ here. We are a community of confession. That's what we strive to be. Um, and we look at each other and we say, you know what? You are forgiven in the name of Jesus. It's freeing. It's wonderful. It's a little taste of resurrection. And then we come on up and we take a piece of bread, we dip it and we eat it. We say, thank you. I do this to remember you. You take it inside of you. It's like taking the gospel inside of you deeper, and you, you pray that it will make another impact again. So we're going to have, I think, four communion servers, two up front and then two in the back. Um, take your time. Talk to God. Do what you need to do. And then we're going to end with, uh, with, uh, with one more song. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You're a good God. You're a holy God. Thank you for your message of resurrection. It's so important to us. Help us to not just Think about it and, and affirm that it happened. Teach us to take part in it. You have, you have made us your hands and feet since you're no longer here. You, your ascension, and you put your spirit inside of us, and, and, and we are now the body, and, and, and it is now our job to take this resurrection to the world. Help us to live it, to celebrate it, to affirm it, to use it to give people hope when people are, are suffering and they're sad or, or they're, they feel worthless or they just feel too far gone, we talk about the resurrection. Because Jesus was pretty far gone. And if you can do that, you can do anything. We love you, God. In your name, amen.